Today's text is Matthew 7, verses 1 through 20. Judge not that you be not judged, for with judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Go ahead and have a seat. Oops. Uh, It's good to be indoors with uh, air conditioning. (laughs) Oh, man, brutal weather. Um, So uh, we are going to continue. in uh, our, our sermon series, Sermon on the Mount, this is our second to last message. We're going to tackle just a little bit more uh, than halfway of Matthew chapter 7 this morning. Uh, and then next week we'll finish with uh, the rest of Matthew chapter 7. And so let me remind you that um, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, Jesus, his message to his disciples. This is the first recorded uh, teaching that we have of Jesus And uh, we've entitled it, A Sermon on the Mount, A Message from the King, because we know that Jesus is the one that God sent to rule his people. And what we want to gain and and learn, and I hope what we have learned um, through this series so far, really is uh, the king's message. What is it that Jesus was was teaching and, and, and informing his disciples about? Because we know that by way of God's grace... Um, that we are, although not part of the historic original 12 disciples, um, but we are, um, this message was through the disciples intended for us today as well. That's what we believe about God's word. Um, And so we want to know what it is that Jesus has to say to his people. What is it, as as remember now, Jesus is laying out somewhat of a new message, or he's, let's say he's clarifying an old message. Right, one that had that, that his people didn't fully understand, and so he's he's letting them know like this is I'm the king, 
This is my kingdom, and this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. And so if you remember the, the, the beginning of, of Matthew chapter 5, it's commonly known as the Beatitudes. Blessed are those. And so we talked about how God's heart, and, and the king opens his message to his disciples. Like, this is foundational. This, this changes the way we view God. That God's heart, the king announces that God's heart is to bless his people. The king's heart is to be for his people. God is, God is for his people. God didn't send Jesus to domineer and to reign in a way that brings oppression and strife, but in a way that brings blessing and freedom. And then we talked about how Jesus' words that were to be salt and light in the earth is, is, is that the king calls and, and, and informs us that those who are God's people, those who are part of the king's kingdom or citizens of the kingdom, that the king's way of living looks drastically different than the world. There never will be a confusion of God's kingdom and the worldly kingdom. Now, granted, there's often confusion in the way we live in God's kingdom, right? But that's because of our own folly and sin and lack of belief and obedience, not because the kingdom is, is easy to be mistaken for the world. We talked about how God demands righteousness, and Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not inherit heaven. And that had to have had the disciples reeling. That should have us reeling. Because to the disciples, the Pharisees were the righteous of the righteous. They were the most righteous. And the Pharisees definitely um, uh, forecasted that upon the people. Like, look, look at how righteous we are. And Jesus even uses their examples of how they pray and how they fasted and how they gave. And they did it in a way that the whole, all the people would know. And therefore, they would equate them as righteous or as holy. But we talked about how Jesus' righteousness is, that, is not that of behavior, but it's that of heart. And Jesus takes us through some of his most famous sayings of, of how you've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you that if you hate, right? And, and you've heard it say, don't commit adultery, but I tell you if you lust. And you've heard it said that you could commit an oath. And, and Jesus says, don't, you don't need an oath. Just let your yes be yes. Do what, you're gonna, do what you say you're going to do. And then we saw how the king's message is a message of activity and that God's people are to not just be spectators in his kingdom, but God's people are to be active in kingdom work. We are not saved to be spectators. This is not, you know, how we come to, uh, you know, uh, football season, right? Like we're already uh, having withdrawals and starving for the start of football season. Uh, most people, or maybe it's just me, but yes, it's, it's real, <laughs> right? Um, but, but it's not the NFL, whereas in we're all just spectators wishing that we could play, wishing that we could be a part, right? Wishing that we could run out. Like, that's got to be one of the most uh, high experiences on earth is to run out one of those tunnels with a team, right? And to hear the crowd, the home crowd, go crazy. Like, that's just, I, I don't know what would match that, but to experience that. But that's how we view football and how we view sports and how we view a lot of things in life. But the king says, that's not how life in my kingdom is, that, that all of my people are to participate and be active in my kingdom. And last week we saw that God's message is one of sovereignty in the midst of all of life. 
and that God's sovereignty, the king declares that, that God is sovereign and that, that by his sovereignty we are brought peace and comfort in the midst of all circumstances of life. And this morning, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 20, we're going to see that the king's message is that of maturity. And what I want us to see as we begin this morning is that it is God's sovereignty that fuels our maturity. You see, it is a deeper belief in who God is and how God reigns and how God deals with both the just and the unjust or the righteous and the unrighteous or as we would typically call it, the saved and the unsaved. But it is our our reliance in that that fuels our maturity. In fact, as I told you last week, that, that I think that uh, it, is, it is impossible to, to grow fully. Not, not, not that you can't grow some, but it's impossible to grow fully um, in your Christian walk and be transformed fully into the image of Christ without a deep belief and rest in the sovereignty of God. And so now I just love how strategic Jesus is in his message. Uh, and now he, he goes from sovereignty last week to maturity this week. And, and here is the lie that we have been told and the lie our hearts combat is that God accepts me just as I am and that he doesn't expect me to change. God accepts me just as I am. And now for some of you, that's all you've grown up being told is that God accepts you just as you are. And so you're, you're kind of reeling. So give me a moment to explain. And let me explain it in light of the truth that I think combats that lie. And the truth is simply this, that the king's message calls his people to mature. The king's message calls his people to mature. Like there is, when we are saved, there is an automatic empowering of the spirit, an automatic call of God, but also an automatic expectation that we grow in the ways of God. In fact, when you look at all of Paul's prayers, when he prays for the church, he prays that they would grow in their knowledge of God and that that knowledge would then transform the way that they live their lives. That's maturity. It's also what we would call sanctification, the process of of continually being changed into the image of God. But I don't believe that God accepts us as we are. And here's why I don't believe that. Because I believe if God accepts us as we are, then I believe that Christ would be of no consequence. Christ would be arbitrary. If God simply accepts us as we are, then there is no need for Christ. There's no need for Christ. There's no need for Scripture. There's no need for the church. But I believe that the truth is that God accepts us in spite of who we are. And you see, when we, when we believe that God accepts us in spite of who we are, rather than God accepts us as we are, then Christ becomes all the more valuable. You see, there's a great value placed on the person and the work of Jesus when we say that God accepts us in spite of who we are. Because in that, it's acknowledging that we are not acceptable in ourselves to God. If we say that God accepts us how we are, then what we're saying is that God has lowered his standards so that we, so that we are acceptable. Does that make sense? Like, there is no lowering of God's standards. We saw that in, God's, in the king's message of righteousness. But God accepts us in spite of who we are. There's an old hymn that I was reminded of this week as I was studying, and I battled with because I want to make sure that I'm not just saying what I think, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying truth. And there's a, a precious 
hymn of the church entitled, Just As I Am. But let me, let me read the words to you. Because to say, just as I am, in itself is incomplete. I think it's wrong. But now when we hear the words of this hymn, I think that it, it actually shows us that God doesn't accept us as we are. He accepts us in spite of how we are. Here's some of the words. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, and relieve. Because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. You see, so all the word, although the words that he uses in this hymn is just as I am, really the picture that he's painting in the entire hymn is that, that God accepts us in spite of who we are. Because he acknowledges that we have no plea. He acknowledges that when we come and when we believe that God accepts us and he welcomes us into his family, yes. But what else does he do? He pardons us from our sin. He doesn't accept us as sinners. He declares us no longer sinful. He ransoms us. He cleanses us. The way that God pardons us is he cleanses us through the blood of his son. So we are no longer unrighteous, sinful, wretched people, but we are now righteous, clothed, cleansed people. And in that cleansing, because God cleanses us, that, and, and that leads to our pardoning, our justification, we are relieved. Oh, what treasure and peace there is in the relief that God brings when he cleanses and pardons. What are we relieved of? We're relieved of the penalty that our sin justly requires. The penalty has not been taken away, right? The penalty was dealt at the cross. But if we just say God accepts us just as we are, then what did he do with sin? But God accepts us in spite of who we are. And when he saves us, when he justifies us, when he transforms our hearts and he welcomes us into his family, it begins this continual process of maturity and sanctification, transformation. Any one of those three words are interchangeable. They all kind of paint the same picture of Christianity. In fact, there's points where Paul gets really, really harsh with his people that he's writing to. And he says, oh, how I wish you would grow up, but you're still a bunch of babies. And he uses this picture of an infant nursing at its mother. He's like, oh, how I wish I could feed you the way a mature grown-up eats with a nice big steak and a steak knife, cutting it. And you're feeding yourself, but you're still at the breast of your mother receiving milk. And Paul chides them for not maturing. So what Jesus is saying, what the king is saying, is that he, he, he brings about, or there's, there's an expectation, or there is a call to, to, to be mature. You see, in Christ, we are cleansed from who we were. And God's Spirit dwells in us to grow us and transform us and mature us into the image of Jesus. You see, in this, Christ, again, isn't arbitrary, but he's vital. Christ is not only the means of our salvation, but he is the means of our sanctification. You see, this is maturity. Maturity is growing from a belief that Jesus and the gospel of Jesus is only good for saving us, 
for getting us into the family, right? For getting us into a quote-unquote heaven. But maturity is understanding how the gospel also not only saves us and justifies us, but it sanctifies us. Right? How, how does the work of Jesus, the gospel, the good news, how does, it, how does it help me and transform my heart in my daily battle with lust or greed or pride, right? Or, or gossip or laziness or self-righteousness? That's maturity. Is that we see that the gospel is relevant not only for the unsaved, but it is for the saved. You see, the church should be a church of evangelism. And evangelism, evangelism should not just happen to those who are not saved and don't believe, but evangelism must take place with those who are saved as well. You see, evangelism is simply the declaration of the evangel or, or, or Christ, the Messiah. And the church needs to be reminded about Christ. And if there is anything, any one thing that I've been able to contribute to all of you over the last four years, I hope that it's this. I hope that you have been able to see the unparalleled importance of Christ and the unequaled value of Christ. Like, if anything was accomplished, let everything fall by the wayside. Any good that was done, any good that we tried to do, let it fall by the wayside if we did not come to see the unparalleled importance and unequaled value of Christ. And so this morning, I think, in these verses, there's a few things that specifically that Jesus calls his disciples to maturity in. And I think that it's helpful to view these in light of the rest of the the Sermon on the Mount. And so what I want us to keep in mind is a few things. One, Jesus is sitting on a mountainside with his disciples, right? We know that as he's sitting there talking that the great multitudes followed. So there are believers there, there are disciples there that he's talking to primarily, but there are also unbelievers who are sitting there listening. The other thing that we need to keep in mind is how Jesus has gone kind of back and forth and, and brought to the disciples' um, forefront of their minds the picture of the Pharisees and self-righteousness and legalism. And I think that as we look at this message of maturity and as Jesus presents really this message of maturity uh, to his disciples, I think that all of these things are going through their minds. And so it's helpful for us to understand this message with those same things at the forefront of our minds. And so there, I think there's four areas this morning in this text that Jesus' message calls his people to mature in. And the first area is how we confront sin. You see, part of maturity in Christ, maturity as a Christian, is how we confront sin. How we view sin and how then we confront sin. Look at verses 1 through 6 in Matthew chapter 7 with me. Jesus says, judge not that you not be judged. Oh, how we love that verse, right? Like that's, our def- that's like our final and greatest and last defense, typically, right, about everything. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. No matter what it would be, the way we parent, the way we care for our spouse, the way we spend our money, we believe that Christian- Christianity is a-, is a religion or a belief without judging. And we love to claim that. But verse 2, he says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let, this, uh, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot 
and turn and attack you. You see, I think that, the, that, that Jesus is calling his disciples to maturity in how they confront sin. You see, Jesus does not condemn confronting sin. Do you get that? Did you see that in verse 6? At no point, verses 1 through 6, at no point did Jesus say, don't try and remove the speck from your brother's eye. He doesn't do it. You see, in fact, the step of maturity as a believer is the courage it takes, right? And the reliance on God's spirit it takes to confront sin in one another. Why does it take courage? Well, because we're still in the flesh and we really care. No matter how much we say we don't, we really care what people think about us. When you're trying to grow a church, it really matters if people come. (laughs) It really matters if people join. It really matters if people give and participate. And so what happens? There's a temptation, right, to let sin go because it's not that big of a deal. We'll just let it go. Because what we begin to do is we begin to place value. It's a point system, if you will. We begin to place value. What is more valuable? This person's maturity and the speck of sin being removed from their eye or they're giving to our cause or they're participating in what we are doing. That's, that's, that's the temptation. And so what happens in that moment, remember, this is in light of God's message of sovereignty. We begin to value the sovereignty of man and man's ability to help us in our mission over God's. Whose mission is it to begin with? Whose desire to grow the church? Whose desire that people would be saved? It's not ultimately our desire. It's God's. It's God's good pleasure. It's God's good will. But we're tempted to not want to confront sin. But Jesus doesn't say don't confront sin. You see, we are to be a people that confront sin. What Jesus condemns is self-righteous judging of others. You see, in the very nature of, of this judging that Jesus is talking about, isn't a noticing of their sin and moving in love and grace to help them remove that. In fact, Jesus says that the goal is to remove the log from your own eye so that you can then go, right, and pull the speck out of their eye. But what he says is, how can you do that when you've got a log in your own eye? And the, the, the picture that always comes to my mind, if you will, is picture like a, a nice big railroad tie, <laughs> right, sticking out of your eye, and you're walking around hitting people with this log of self-righteousness as you're trying to, in love, speak the truth and confront them in their sin. It's, it's, it's idiotic, right? That picture. But a lot of times that is how we walk around in the church. You see, I don't care so much about removing the speck in your eye, from your eye, so that you would no longer sin, so that you would no longer believe a lie, that you would, you would come to walk in the freedom of the truth. But I care about making sure that you know that I don't sin that way, therefore I am better than you, and therefore you need to become like me if you really want to be holy. That's this line of thinking. And wasn't this absolutely the line of thinking of the Pharisees that Jesus keeps comparing his message to? Right? Don't fast in a way that people see that you have gone without food for a long time so that they'll know how holy you are? Don't stand on the corner and announce how much money you've given, all the great things you've done, so that people will esteem you? And don't pray out loud on the corner so that people will know that you're close to God? This is what Jesus is talking about. You see, Jesus instructs us to see the sin of others. As citizens of his kingdom, 
We are to know what sin is. Right? Isn't that implied? Isn't that an, like that's that's a necessity of confronting sin in one another of, of what really is sin? What really is an atrocity before the king as opposed to what just makes me uncomfortable? But Jesus instructs us to see the sin of others and then in maturity act to help them see and overcome their sin. And don't we see this is exactly what we see in Jesus. Jesus didn't come self-righteous in self-righteousness. If anybody could have ever been self-righteous, it was who? The one person who never sinned? But he didn't. He acted in humility and love. And although we were all walking around with logs in our eyes, and Jesus was seen clearly and perfectly, he moved so that our log would be removed. At no time was Jesus self-righteous in the way he saw our sin or in the way that he confronted our sin. And so this message of maturity is one that expects us as a church. Listen, we're all, we're all, um, we all have the difficult task now of, of finding a new faithful church to call home, right? To call family, okay? That's the, very, that's the reality of where we are. And I'll tell you that it is an unfaithful church if, if confronting sin in a loving and graceful manner and repentance is not a normal part of their culture. It's not a healthy church. Find a people. Be a people. Right? That knows that sanctification is a process. And God does not look down on us in judgment because we're in process. But He cares for us in grace and in love. And with patience and gentleness, He grows us in maturity. So you see, that is something that as mature believers that we can bring to a group of people. We can help aid that. See, we're, one of the things that I'm even personally struggling with right now is, is the line of what is consumerism? Like just, just finding a church where I'm happy and I'm comfortable versus finding a church where we can go and be an active part, right, in helping a church succeed in the mission of God. And that is, a, a, that is something that we are all faced with. But one of the things that we have to continue to understand is, is that repentance and, co- and confronting sin and confessing sin is a normal, healthy part of church. That's something we've tried to foster. I think we've done a pretty good job at it, in fact. But that is maturity. You see, it is not immature to, in love, go to somebody and call them on their sin and the way they treat their kids or their spouse or their money or their job or their life, the time of their life. It's maturity. But what we can't do is we can't walk in as a group of people that say, hey, we're coming from a church that although it didn't work out, we had it all right, and you need to be like us. Like, you need to operate your groups the way that we did because it was right. Like, because you know why? We confront sin. That's an unhealthy, sinful way to approach a group of people, right? Don't walk around. Don't take that railroad tie off the stage there and walk around and put it in your eye and hit people with it because they don't do things the way that we do them. But in humility, by God's grace, remove the log from your eye that you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
Now, the second area that the king calls his um, people to mature in is in prayer. See, the king's message calls his people to mature in how we pray. So how we confront sin, but also how we pray. And number two is how we pray. Look at verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? I would never do that. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? You see, we are to mature in the way we pray. We are not to be like the Pharisees, where we just say as many words as possible, because the more words, the more God hears. Right? It's not a spray and pray mentality, where if I say a thousand words, he'll heal he'll four of them. I just hope it's the right four. But Jesus says, ask. What does he mean by ask? Well, two things, I think. First, what he means, first by ask, I think, is one, asking is a humble recognition of need. Ask. God, help us find a healthy, faithful church that will love us and care for us, but yet that we will also be able to participate in and help further the kingdom of God. Right? Like, there is a, a humble acknowledgement when you ask. When your kids ask for something, when they are hungry, they're acknowledging that they don't have the ability to give themselves food, to, to make their own food. It's one of the greatest things as a dad. Dad, can you come help me with this? Right? And so, one, it is a humble recognition of our needs. But listen, the other, the other thing I think that it speaks to is it speaks to understanding the heart of God. See, you ask your father to help. You ask your father when you're in need. You see, my kids pretty much know what not to ask for. That's a part of training them, right? The older ones are getting a lot. They know what not to ask for, right? But they know what to ask for, and they know what they get. They know what will be given to them. They know that when they need help, they will be helped. They know that when they need food, they will be given food. When they need water, they'll be given water. When they need clothes, they will be given clothes. When they need comforting, they'll be given comfort. They know. So not only is asking a humble recognition of our needs, but it's also, I think, a humble adoration of God's fatherly care. Right? It's saying, God, you care. You care. And Jesus is telling them that the Father cares, that God cares. That's why he's telling them to ask. Ask what you need. Then he goes on and he says, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. And I think this seeking, Jesus is connecting asking or the humble recognition of our needs. He's connecting it with our responsibility to pursue holiness. You see, there's, there's an active instruction in seek. Go out in due diligence and seek. Seek the answer to what you have asked, knowing that God and his sovereignty will provide. But very rarely will God's sovereignty provide as we sit on the couch and just wait for it to come to us. Right? Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
Now, see, we believe that it is God's work that, that, that sanctifies us. It is the gospel that transforms our heart and, and to more, into the image of Christ. We believe that. But at the same time, God's word instructs us to put to death what is sinful in you, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurities, passions, evil desire, covetousness, and all idolatry. How do we possess the power to put to death what is earthly in us? Well, outside God's power, we don't. You see the unity there? We are to seek the power to do it. We are, we are to strive to say no and put off in us what is evil. And I think this is what Jesus is saying by seek. Ask, God will give it to you. Seek and you will, you will find. Do due diligence and looking to complete the mission of God. Do your due diligence to provide faithfully for your family. Going out, looking for a good job, looking for adequate housing, right? Those things. You, you're active in doing those things, and you believe that as you're doing those things, you're asking God to provide a job, a home, these things, a church, resting that God will provide as you seek it out. Listen, can I tell you that if... <laughs> If you just sit on your couch waiting for somebody to knock on your door and ask you to come to church with them, it's going to be the wrong church. Right? (laughs) Get off your butt, ask God to lead you to a church, and then seek one out and find it. Don't wait for them to knock. It's going to be the wrong one, even if they say Jesus. Right? And then he says knock. What does he mean by knock? Well, I think knock means that we persevere in our asking and in our seeking. Paul instructs the church in 1 Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. Knock, continual, seek. See, written in this is, is, is the instruction or the encouragement to not get discouraged. Continue asking. Continual seeking. 1 John 5.14 says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You see, God is a good father who gives gifts. This is what Jesus is saying to them. But we need to mature in the way we pray. We need to ask him to lead us and to guide us and to provide for us. And as we are faithfully and continually asking him, we need to be active in seeking that those things are found and we will find them. Knock, the door will be opened. Now, I think the third area in our text this morning that the king's message causes people to mature in is how we treat others. Look at verse 12 through 14, the golden rule. So, whoever, uh, so whatever you wish that others do to you, do also to them, for this is, the law of the pro- this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Did you know that verse 13 and 14 were part of the golden rule? <laughs> or do we just think it's do unto others what you would have them do unto? Right? Because that's, in that is kind of, if we were to leave verse, um, if we were to leave do unto others as you want them to do unto you by itself, we would think karma. I'm going to do good to you and then you're going to owe me good and pay me back. I'm going to do good to you, right? This is karma. Or if I don't do good to you, then I deserve bad back. But how do we reconcile this not being karma, right? Well, I think that's what the other two verses are for. You see, it implies that people are going to do you wrong. And in the face of them doing you wrong, you are still to do unto them what you would have rather them do to you. 
You see, I don't think this is so much proactive as it is reactive. I do think we're supposed to do good things still, even to people who haven't done wrong to us. But I think what Jesus is saying is that as we mature, our hearts and our mindset will be changed to do good to those who have already done evil to us. You see, seldom, seldom is the godly thing the easy thing to do. This is what Jesus is saying here in verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, but that's the way that leads to life. You see, life is found in doing the hard things. What is life? Jesus' life. See, we will find Jesus along the narrow path of doing hard things. Jesus himself is very rarely found along the wide path. In fact, Jesus here says it's not found, right? It's, life is not found along the, narrow, or along the wide path full of easiness. But he is found upon the narrow path that is difficult. Why is that? Because in that it teaches, I believe, it teaches us to value Christ more than the path itself. It teaches us to value Christ more than the things that the easy path provides. Luke 22, verses 42, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is Jesus' famous prayer in the garden before he is crucified. Would it not have been the easier path for Christ, for Jesus, to have removed that cup and found another way? But Jesus chose the narrow path, the hard path, because on it was what? Life. Life. Had Jesus not have gone through with it, he would not have been raised from the dead. Therefore, life would not have been granted to God's people. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Can I tell you that that is the narrow and hard path? It is narrow because few people do it, and that is why it is hard. It is hard, and few people do it. Few people will you meet in your life that will actually consider you more significant than them. Few people will you meet in your life that will actually place your needs above their own wants and desires, pleasures. But these should be the markers of mature Christians. Not necessarily seminary degrees or experience or charismatic personalities, but these markers of maturity that Jesus lays out. You want to find somebody to follow? Find somebody that treats others as more significant than themselves. Find somebody that in love and grace is willing to go and confront sin so that you will be restored unto Jesus. So that you will be transformed into the image of Jesus, not into the image of that leader. I think, you see, at the very core of what Christians believe is the elevating the good of those in need. Is elevating the good of those in need above our own, above ourselves. And again, isn't this what we see in Jesus? This is exactly what we see in Jesus. Last, fourthly, the king's message calls his people to mature. Listen to this one. I find it fascinating that Jesus includes this one in, this, in, this, uh, in, in, in his message here. But the, the king's message calls his people to mature in who we recognize as shepherds. Who we recognize as shepherds or leaders. 
Look at verses 15 through 20 with me. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does bear good fruit is uh, or that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You see, this is typically most often associated with us talking about one another, brothers and sisters in the church. And I think you can infer that, and I think that there's lessons to be learned in that. I've often heard um, the way that uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 are reconciled with the verses we just read, or is that in in, in Matthew, um, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is telling us not to judge, to condemn people. But in, in these verses, in, in verses 15 through 20, Jesus is telling us to judge, to identify one another as believers, like we are called as believers. Like, that is the role of the church. Do you realize that? Is to recognize other believers. That's why the church is necessary. One of the reasons the church is necessary. But I don't think that the focus of this section of a tree and its fruit is on how we recognize one another. I think the actual focus of it is how we recognize leaders. Verse 15, Jesus opens, beware of what? False who? prophets. What did the disciples recognize prophets to be? Leaders. You see, they didn't, they, they didn't see the entire people of Israel as individual prophets. Remember, Old Testament prophets were, were certain men who were called by God and set aside that God de- dealt with directly. Jesus hasn't died yet. The veil in the, in the temple hasn't been torn yet. The disciples still understand this mentality. They're, remember, they're, they're, they're before the, the cross and the resurrection. So Jesus is telling them, be careful of those who will come among you and proclaim to be leaders and teachers and pastors and shepherds, but are really wolves who are not seeking your eternal life and your maturity, but are actually seeking your eternal destruction. Now look at the way that he, he does this. He uses a couple of word pictures here. First, he says wolves in sheep's clothing. You see, to be a true prophet or a true priest or, or, or a, let's say faithful, not true, pastor, you don't just have to be nice. You don't just have to be likable. Right? Like, I love John Piper when he talks about this, about how the, the, the path to hell and hell itself is full of nice people. And just because a guy is on TV and he's really nice <laughs> doesn't mean that he's not a false prophet. This is the whole disguise. They're wolves, but they're not just coming out and declaring to be wolves. And they're not just devouring you. And they're not just outright saying Jesus is wrong. But they're wolves in sheep's clothing. This tells us that they're camouflaged. It's hard to sometimes decipher. You have, listen, you know, how, you know how you know a false prophet? You, the individual believer, has to know doctrine. You have to know what the gospel is. You have to know what the gospel is not. Otherwise, how are you going to know if it's a sheep or if it's a wolf in sheep's clothing? You see, it is the church's job to guard doctrine and the elders' doctrine and to keep the elders accountable in their doctrine. And so as Christians, we must be vigilant to know doctrine. Now, the other picture that he uses, and this is not only of a wolf in sheep's clothing, but he, he talks about fruit trees, right? Right? And he says that a bad tree will be, a tree that doesn't produce bad fruit is torn down and thrown into the fire. Here's what he's saying. 
In those days, if, if a tree didn't bear fruit, they would cut it down and they would chop it up and they would use it for firewood. This is what he's saying. It has no value. It, it doesn't produce fruit. There's no value in it. The only value that it has is very insignificant in that we cut it down and we chop it up and we use it for fire. Are fires nice? Yeah, when we go camping, I don't camp anywhere that doesn't allow me to have a fire. I've learned now to ask that on the front end. <laughs> we made that mistake once. Right? We, we love fires, but it's not vital to existence. Fruit and nutrition is vital to existence. Now, the other thing that Jesus is doing here is he's, is he's kind of giving us a word picture of what will happen in the end to false prophets. They will be chopped down and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. They, false prophets will spend, no matter how nice they are, will spend eternity separate from God's pleasure and blessing. You see, it's a picture of the eternal judgment of false teachers. And so Jesus is calling his disciples. Think about the road that these guys had ahead of them. Jesus knew that, that he was going to be crucified. Jesus knew that Peter was going to be, going to be uh, challenged to uh, acknowledge him in the crowds. Jesus knew all of this. Jesus knew the persecution that was going to come upon the church that would cause it to disperse out of Jerusalem after he ascended to heaven. Jesus knew the, 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 the struggles that we would have to believe today in 2016. So he gives us this message of maturity. He gives us this message that is built upon himself fulfilling the law, right? And the most perfect picture of maturity we see is Jesus. Jesus, we saw how Jesus, we've personally experienced how Jesus confronts our sin. We know how Jesus prays. We saw how Jesus treated others while he walked on earth and how he treats us now. And we very clearly saw how Jesus discerned leaders. And he had no problem calling them false teachers and vipers and wolves. And so to be faithful citizens in the kingdom, faithful followers of our king, we need to mature. See, God doesn't just want you to stay as you are. He, in, he accepted you and brought you into his family in spite of how you were. But just as we saw in the words of that old, old hymn, that yes, he pardoned us, he brought us in, he welcomed us, but he cleanses us and he transforms us. So may we as God's people, as citizens in God's kingdom, continue to strive for maturity. May we ask that God's Spirit would transform our hearts continually and mature us. But as we're asking that, may we be active in putting to death the sin that resides in our fleshly bodies. May we be faithful to lovingly and gently confront the sins in one another. Not so that we could try to get those people to be like us, but so that they would experience the freedom, right, of the freedom and the, and the washing and the relief, as that hymn said, of walking faithfully before the King. If you guys will stand with me, we'll pray. God, 